I just preached the message over at the Hillside campus, and uh, there were about 150, 170 people there. And as I preached, at the end, I felt like I preached really well. And uh, normally, I've been, uh, we've been aiming for a 98-minute service, so I've been preaching about 40, 45-minute sermons. Um, but I went for a while over at Hillside. All right? I'll, just, I'll just admit that, and I'll confess that I might go a while here, too. But, but uh, newcomers are like, what? Uh, the bad news is that at the end, I found out that the podcast got jacked up. All right? That's a very important message. And so, you know, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if the devil is behind it. It smells like the devil. Uh, but it made me so determined that when I got here, I preached the fullness of this message. <clears throat> uh, balanced but full. I want to preach this message, a very important message. Uh, on September 4th, I began a sermon series on the role of women in ministry and leadership. Uh, that first message was titled, Women Are Not Inferior. And um, after that message, we had a bunch of guest speakers. So I wasn't able to really preach until today. So today I'm going to be picking up where I left off six weeks ago. And just to summarize my first message, women are not inferior, I explained how horribly that women are oppressed in today's societies. But not only today, but throughout all of human history, women have been oppressed. And I talked about how, unfortunately, the church, instead of providing a place of freedom or safety, they have actually perpetuated this situation. Um, and the... World has various reasons for oppressing women, but within the church, I identify two reasons, two main reasons why the church perpetuates the oppression of women. One is tradition and culture. And I said the second is biblical exegesis. Uh, and I dealt with the first cause in my first message, explaining that for many people in the church, their ideas about women in ministry and leadership is shaped more by tradition and culture rather than by scripture. In other words, their view of women and leadership is more shaped by Confucius than Christ. More by Plato than Paul. And uh, since women were traditionally not afforded an education through all of history, did you guys know that... Uh, for most of human history, women have not been educated. Women have not given, been given the right to vote. Um, but since I preached my first message on September 4th, it's a cool development. Three weeks after, on the same Sunday, three weeks after, in Saudi Arabia of all places, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia surprised this ultra-conservative nation by announcing bold reforms so that for the first time ever, women in that country are given the right to vote, run for local elections, and serve on the Shura Council. That's a sign unto us that God's doing something even for 
ultra-conservative Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, in American history, black men were allowed to vote starting in 1869 after the Civil War. But did you know that women were not allowed to vote until 1920 with the passing of the 19th Amendment of the United States Constitution? Women have only had the right to vote in America for the last 90 years. Get the vote out, y'all. I mean, this don't... Don't treat your vote, the right to vote with contempt. You've come a long way to get it. Um, anyway, traditionally women were not given the right to vote, given an education. That's because many men and women in the church still have a cultural belief that women don't make good Bible teachers. And therefore they should just stay at home and change the diapers. That is the basic message that many well-meaning Bible-believing Christians believe in the church today they still do and that belief has been shaped i'm telling you right now by more by tradition and culture than it does by scripture and i looked at genesis 1 26 to 27 that says that god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them do you know that men are created in the image of god but you also know that women are created in the image of god now, God's really not male or female. Although the role of father, God likes the role of father because that's such a big role in the family. But God's not really male or female. God has attributes of both. Because women are, tend to be a little more compassionate, sensitive, you know, emotionally connecting, you know. That's, that's not a woman attribute. That's a God attribute. Men, you know, they... They like trucks and <laughs> some of them, they play sports and they're, you know, they're tough and they like things simple. You know, that's, that's also another attribute of God. You know, it's not that we only reflect God, men and women. God's taken his image and distributed it to both men and women. We have to understand that. And, and so I looked at that text because the notion that women are inferior, it cannot be trusted. Uh, because it does not come from scripture. If women are inferior and they are not to be entrusted with an education and leadership responsibilities, then why is it that God gives both of them the mandate to fill the earth and have dominion over it? He doesn't look at Adam and say, fill the earth, have dominion. And Eve, you help him out. Right? He gives it to both of them. So that's what I talked about, right? Um, and uh, some actually will say at this point uh, that the fall in the garden placed Eve in a, in a position of inferiority and weakness. And, um, but, you know, it seems to me that this curse's effect didn't phase Deborah. Because we all know that Deborah led. She was a leader. She was a judge, a prophet for the whole nation of Israel. Holda was also another prophet. That you didn't want to mess with. Because she was in charge. Um, and God didn't seem to be aware of such a curse when he refers to Miriam as a leader in Micah chapter 6 verse 3 to 4. He says, I sent Moses to you to lead you and Aaron and Miriam. God saw them as leaders. He didn't say just Aaron and Moses. He said Miriam included. Miriam was, as we looked at, the first starting Shek. And all of history. 
She was the first female worship leader that we know of. When they came out the Red Sea, she just started getting up there. Come on, everybody, clap your hands. Let's sing to the Lord. You know, she led worship for both men and women. Uh, Paul, although he was fully aware of the culture of his time, he didn't seem to think that women were inferior. He commends them in his letters as key leaders in the churches he had planted. He actually refers to Phoebe with the Greek word diakonos, which means uh, uh, denoting, it's a word denoting leadership. Uh, finally, Jesus, in a culture where rabbis only had male disciples, in that culture, Jesus allowed women to follow him and listen to his teachings. Where Mary would be sitting at his feet. And we looked at that as not a position of worship, more as it is a position in which she was receiving teaching. Okay. And so, you know, uh, I looked at it in my first message. I try to break us free from the influence of culture and tradition by using these plain examples from Scripture to show that in all of the Word of God, there is no mention of God implying that women are inferior. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that was my first message. Um, Women are not inferior. And actually, I, I found out that Greek philosophers are the ones that helped to make this teaching very popular, uh, that women are inferior. They kind of really implied it in a lot of their philosophies. Um, everybody say, women are not inferior. Women are not inferior. Okay, this is a lie. Okay. Now, how many of you in here... Now, first, I said there's two reasons why I see churches perpetuating oppression okay now i'm not talking about churches that have a healthy biblical perspective and they have role uh placements for women role role assignments for women i'm not talking about that i'm talking about just churches christians that oppress women i mean they 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 oppress women there's a lot of churches that do that and i I said the two reasons were tradition and culture and second was biblical exegesis now before i get into biblical exegesis let me ask you a question there are two main texts that are used by those who uh, argue for women should be forbidden from teaching and holding leadership positions. How many of you guys in here, you've studied that text, you know what those texts are, and you can actually have a discussion on it. Raise your hand if you've, you actually know what text I'm about to present, and you know the discussion surrounding, the, the biblical exegesis surrounding this discussion. Raise your hand if you know the biblical text. Okay. There's four of you and two of you are not sure. Okay. That tells me that the rest of you have derived your perspective of women in ministry and leadership. You've gotten it from culture and tradition, not from the Bible. Some of you in here may be even stubborn about your position, but I'm here to tell you, you obviously don't know the discussion about the biblical exegesis. So let me just ignite you right now. You didn't get your view from the Bible. You got it from culture and tradition. Why don't you just admit it? You got it because of your Pentecostal holiness movement tradition. You got it because of your Presbyterian PCA denomination. You got it because of your KPC or whatever K, you know, KPs in there here in Korea. You got it more out of your tradition than you got out of the Bible. Because only six of you can, can positively and confidently say, I know something about the text you're about to present. Anyone know where the texts are? First Timothy two. What's the, the other uh, main text? 
No, it's 1 Corinthians 14. 11 is in, in the discussion, but it's not the main text. It's 14. Okay. So, yes, Pastor John knows. In fact, when we video interviewed him last year, I did a women in ministry video for a class presentation. We interviewed all these seminary students at Torch, which is a seminary I'm studying at. And all the students, 95% of them said, I have no problem with women teaching and preaching to men. I have no problem with women in leadership. I have no problem even going to a church led by a female lead pastor. Okay. But uh, when we got to Pastor John, all right, he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, women should use their gifts. You know, I support that. And then second, when we got to uh, uh, women leadership, he was like, yeah, yeah, women should lead, you know, you know, with some male covering. But, you know, women can lead. And then third, would you go to a church with a lead pastor that's female? He actually said, I will be uncomfortable with that. Okay, he's just being honest. You know why he was, un- he was uncomfortable? Because he, through biblical exegesis, is uncomfortable with that. He's righteous in his stance. And there was actually four people in the video out of like 15 that were actually aware of this issue through a biblical exegesis. The rest of them out of culture, we're just saying, yeah, women, you know, Philippines, they have women presidents. You know, why not? Just let the women lead now. Let them preach, you know. You know, nothing to do with the Bible. Okay, so I don't promote that. Okay, I don't promote you getting your views out of culture and tradition. All right, so whether you got a positive view about women, egalitarian view of women, or you have a negative, oppressive view of women, if you got it from tradition and culture, you need to scrutinize it. The word of God needs to test it and weigh it. And your view really needs to submit to the word of God. Okay. So today we're going to look at the second cause of why churches oftentimes will oppress women from taking on certain ministry positions that are afforded to all men. Okay. That second cause is called biblical exegesis. All right. So if you're ready for some Bible study, open up your Bible. Open up your Bible. And say... I'm ready. There we go. All right. In my first message, I mentioned a book. The book was called Four Views of Women in Ministry. Okay. It's a book published a while ago, maybe early 80s. I forget the publishing date. Okay. Four views. They were traditional. There was like, uh, I don't know, man, the, the labels were weird. But anyway, there are four different views. And then I said that I picked up a recent book uh, based by the same publishing company called Two Views of Women in Ministry. So I was like, what happened? How do we go from four to two? Okay. And uh, the second book, the newer book, it talks about it. It says, as recently as two decades ago, the polarity was vast. Okay. There were, there were very extremes in this view. And... Uh, there was just a lot of uh, division and, 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 and arguments on both sides. And uh, what happened was a lot of traditionalists have abandoned some of the more extreme views of uh, forbidding women from speaking, from leading, from teaching, all that. They've, they've kind of abandoned some of those views. And they've come a little bit more closer to the middle. Okay? That's why you have four and now you only have two. And so there's variants of these two views. All right, and so uh, let me teach you what they are. One is called complementarian, which is a very new term. You won't find it in the dictionary. Okay, it was just coined within the last 20 years. This view, there's a couple variants of this view. It sums up 
the kind of the traditional view that has kind of reformed a little bit and have become more open to women's roles. The other view is called the egalitarian view. This view pretty much says women are all equal as men. Women should be able to have access to everything that men can do. Egalitarian. Everyone say complementarian. Everyone say egalitarian. So if you're taking notes, the main hot text that egalitarians like to use is Galatians 3.28. Write that down. Galatians 3.28 is one of their main texts. And I'll read that for you. Now, they have very good intellectual arguments, the egalitarians. But a large part of their thesis or exegesis comes usually from this text because this is one of their favorite texts. Uh, Galatians 3.28, I'll read it for you. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female and there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the egalitarians will argue since we are all one in Christ Jesus. Women should be afforded all of the leadership positions in the church and ministry opportunities as men are. Because they're just as capable. Okay, so that's the egalitarian view. The complementarian view, their hot text comes from two scriptures we mentioned earlier. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15, if you're taking notes. 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15. That's the first main text. And the other hot text is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 through 35. Okay? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 to 35. Now, I'm going to do your favor. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 14 for you. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34 and 35. Listen, it says, And in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent. Oh, snap. Keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. If you're a brother in here, you agree with that? Just say amen. No, I'm playing, I'm playing. <laughs> Shelly Mitchell is about to get up and fly kick somebody. Okay, well, it is the Bible. All right, if you said amen, I wouldn't blame you. All right, it is the Bible. Okay, it is the Bible. Now, uh, the plain reading of this text tells you that women should remain uh, silent in the churches. They shouldn't speak up. If they have a husband, they should go home and ask the husband whatever questions they have about theology and doctrine. Uh, and uh, they should never even speak. Because Paul says, it is shameful for a woman to even speak in the church. It's pretty heavy, right? That's the plain reading of the text. If you don't add anything, you don't interpret it too much, that's the plain reading of the text. Is you you got to take that at face value. Okay, So that's one of the main texts that complementarians will use. And then the other main text, which is the main, main text, everyone turn to that. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
Okay, everyone, please open up your Bible, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. This is the other main text. I'm going to read from the ESV. Let's have the men, all the men, let's read that nice and loud. Okay, 11 through 15. Okay, don't be scared, men. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 through 15. 1, 2, 3, go. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And all the men said, cricket, cricket. All right. Now, let me say a word here. Complementarians do not take the plain reading of this text. It's just too hard to digest. Okay? Complementarians do not take 1 Corinthians 14 as a plain reading. Okay? But the only way you can get these four, uh, prohibitions for women from teaching in front of men or prohibition against women in leadership, you can only really get it from a plain reading of this, of this text. And let me just start off by saying, I normally I favor the plain reading of Scripture. Meaning that when you get overly speculative to come to your interpretations... This is probably something, something's not, something's really gone awry there. Something's not really fitting together. I am a big fan. I favor the plain reading of Scripture. Right? What does the plain reading of 1 Timothy 2 tell you? Okay, it says, Hey, Judy, what time is it right now? It doesn't matter. You shouldn't speak in church. All right. Okay. That's, that's the plain reading. Okay, that's the plain reading. Why? Because, because why? Hey, listen, listen. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And if, it was, if, it was, if that wasn't clear, it says, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. The plain reading of the text would say, women are not allowed to teach men. They're not allowed to have leadership over men. In fact, they're not even allowed to speak. They should just remain quiet. And they should learn through submissiveness. And then it says, Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, that's true. Okay? Adam was not deceived. The devil didn't lie to Adam. The devil lied to Eve. So what Paul's saying here, it sounds quite, you know, sexist. It really isn't. It's a pretty accurate reading of Genesis. A plain reading of Genesis tells you Adam wasn't deceived. The devil didn't lie to Adam. The devil lied to Eve. The devil said, you will not surely die. For the Lord knows on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And so Eve's like, ooh. That sounds wrong, but... Ah, so good. The apple, look, the, the tree, the fruit looks so... And so she gets deceived. She eats. 
And Adam, he was just like, uh, I want to do what you're doing. All right, give me that. Give me some of that fruit too, you know. Adam really, we don't even know if Adam overheard the conversation, okay? All we know is Adam was just, he probably had the hots for Eve and, and Eve was just like, hey, try some of this. Adam's like, all right. <laughs> okay, we don't really know. Okay, we don't really know. But what I'm trying to get at is the plain reading is not inaccurate. All right? Eve was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Okay, so the plain reading here tells me Eve was easily deceived. And therefore, women should not teach. They should not lead in the church. Okay, their main role that they should focus on is raising the children, changing the diapers. So women, just shut your mouth. If you have any questions, go home and ask. And change them diapers before you even ask the questions. Okay? Now, I'm telling you right now, that is the plain reading of this text. Without any creative, speculative interpretations. And you know what? I agree. Okay? Women are easily deceived. I think that's a true statement. But so are the men. Okay? Men are easily deceived just as much as women are. You know? Hey, man. Come up in this brothel and you have a great time. It won't affect your marriage. It won't affect your Christian life. You just have a good night. Come check it out. The man's just like, oh, I shouldn't. But this is so tempting. Okay? Men get easily as deceived as women. Okay, so anyway, I agree with that statement. Men, women are easily deceived, but so are men. All right, and uh, Paul seems to insinuate here that women, they don't have a capability to teach, so therefore they should focus on raising the baby. Okay, all right. So that's the plain reading. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Okay, we're going to come back to it later. That's the plain reading of the text. The complementarians, what they do is, through different interpretive channels, they come to the conclusion, uh, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach. Um, you know what? I think God didn't really mean it like that. I think there's some clauses here we need to put in there. Women can teach children. There's boys there. It says men, not boys. So let the women teach the children. So a lot of times you have female pastors what do they get assigned? The children's ministry. Right? Uh, and then they're, they're pick and choose even further. Some of the complementarians will say, actually, you know, you know, if women have a PhD, you know, you know what? You know, they should be allowed to teach in the seminaries and inside the, uh, in, in different colleges, Christian colleges. So once again, they make an exception and they say, oh, you know what? Women can actually teach men if they have a PhD. Okay? And so they start making all these exceptions to, I do not permit a woman to teach. Right, just to let you know, that's a complementarian view. Another uh, aspect of that is that it says, rather she is to remain quiet. And they're like, oh, you know, that's a little too harsh. Who actually applies that? You know what, we're just going to let that slide. Okay. But what we will not let slide is women in leadership. Women in headship positions of leadership, we ain't going to let that slide. 
It says, I do not permit a woman to teach. I will kind of let that slide a little bit. Or to exercise authority over a man. We cannot let that slide. And so the complementarian view, the divergence with egalitarians is no longer over, over some of the other issues. The main issue is the headship issue. You guys getting that? Oh, you guys look smarter than over at the Hillside campus. I was presenting the same stuff. Okay, I hope they don't listen to this. I think you guys are getting it. Over there, man, I lost a whole lot of people. There were a lot of newcomers too, man. Um, all right, so here. Traditionalists. Let me see this. No, no. Okay. So the issue that divides traditionalists, now self-identified as complementarians, the issue that divides them and egalitarians today is not that of women in ministry, per se, women exercising their spiritual gifts. They don't see anything evil about that. It is rather women in leadership. For while a consensus has emerged regarding women and spiritual gifting, a great divide has emerged on the issue of women and leadership, especially women leading men. This means women being the president of something like Campus Crusade for Christ, inner varsity, a Baptist local church, a Pentecostal local church. On that issue, the complementarians would say, never! Because the scripture says so. So that's the issue that divides egalitarians and complementarians. Um, and, and check this out. The other side, by the way, is dangerous. Okay? Don't throw around the term egalitarian. Okay? Or you will be lining yourself up with a whole bunch of people you will never agree with. Okay? In fact, the safer place is probably the complementarians. Because they read the Bible. They believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They believe in good, sound exegesis, good, sound interpretation of the Bible. That's a safe place to be. The egalitarians who say, oh, women should have access to everything. Okay? There is a, a stream that's fed by the secular feminist movement. There's also a stream fed by the homosexual movement, the gay movement, gay and lesbian movement. Okay? So egalitarians, a lot of times, those who write in these books, these authors, a lot of them would also argue using the same logic for ordaining homosexual pastors, gay and lesbian pastors. Okay, so you don't want to. You don't really want to say I'm egalitarian. I've listened to Pastor Christian's message and I determined I'm egalitarian. Okay, <laughs> if you go around saying that, people will be like, "So your church ordains gay pastors?" And they're like, "Wait, I don't think Pastor Marcus." No, 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 no. I'm blam, blam. <laughs> I'm blam, 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 blam. Like. That's the kind of discussions you're going to end up having. All right. Hey, man, Pastor Marcus is as straight as they come. All right. I'm just saying. All right. He loves women. He loves women. <laughs> that sound bad too? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So anyway, you don't want to line yourself up here too much. So, so carelessly, you don't want to line yourself up with egalitarians either. Okay. But that's the issue. It's the, it's the leadership headship issue. Uh, it is sometimes claimed that when Paul submit, supports his argument with a reference or allusion to the Old Testament, this means that the application of his teaching is to be made in the same way universally and for all time. So you will notice in 1 Timothy 2, Paul appeals to Genesis, the creation account, to back up his instruction to forbid 
women from teaching, taking leadership, or even speaking in church. He uses Genesis. So a lot of people in the complementarian view will say, okay, we're willing to make some of these allowances, but this is Genesis. We can't change the creation account. So you know what? On the most biggest issue, we cannot move. The leadership headship issue. Okay. Anyway, I just presented to you the two views. Okay. There's variants of those two views, but I'm just saying that's the main two views. Okay. Let's go into some Bible study right now. Okay. Um, there's a well-respected uh, scholar named Gordon Fee. Okay. I don't agree with him on everything, but he presents uh, a very interesting, very systematic paradigm that I feel is worth noting here. It's worth presenting here. In his book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, Gordon Fee discusses the issue of women teaching in the church, and he submits that the epistles, the New Testament letters, listen to this, the letters are occasional documents of the first century, conditioned by the language and culture of the first century, which spoke to specific situations in the first century church. Okay. So, what he gets at is many of the situations that we find in the epistles, uh, the New Testament letters, they are so culturally conditioned that we actually find no application for it today. Others, they are also authority dependent on the culture, but they can be translated and packaged in a way for us today that has relevance to our contemporary society. So the challenge for us is to identify those that seem to have contemporary relevance identify those that have that contemporary relevance, but are actually, it's better to leave them in the first century. To leave them in the first century culture. Okay? Uh, so let me give you some examples. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, leave a little wine for your stomach's sake. Okay? In other words, you know, Timothy has some health issues, I'm sure, or something like that, or maybe has some stomach problems. Maybe he was lactose intolerant, didn't know it. Didn't know it, you know? And so the Apostle Paul says, you know what? Just drink a little wine for that stomach problem. Okay. Now, I don't know any pastors today. You call up, hey, Pastor Aaron. Oh, Pastor Aaron, my stomach is hurting. <laughs> you know what it says in scriptures? <laughs> Take some wine for that stomach ache right now. Okay. I don't know any pastors that do that. What does that tell you? That instruction is left in the first century. Uh, let me give you a better example. Head coverings. Okay. Uh, when you walk into New Philly, we do not offer the women a head covering. <laughs> I just found out on the ride over here that Janae in South Africa, she goes to a Pentecostal uh, holiness type church back in South Africa. They actually wear head coverings. Okay. But you will notice that New Philly, we don't offer you a head covering as you come in. All right. What's that tell you? Well, 1 Corinthians 11 tells you that Women should always have head coverings, right? But why don't we do it today? It's because we feel like that was culturally relevant to the first century church, but not today. So we leave it in the first century. That's what I'm saying. I'll give you a better example than this. In the New Testament, Paul instructs his audience four times, almost verbatim. The words in the Greek are verbatim the same. Four times in four different letters, four, four different contexts. I don't know if they're on the same letter or different letters. Four, they are in different letters, but I don't know if all four of them are in different letters. Anyway, as you can see, the way the mom, mom works is very technical. Uh, 
He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. He doesn't say, I suggest you greet each other with a holy kiss. Now he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, if a brother in here today <laughs> greeted another brother with a holy kiss, that first brother might be greeted with a holy fist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All right. I will never greet Troy with a holy kiss. <laughs> Alright, just, you know, hey, let me be biblical, brother. Come here. Come on. Let me be biblical. Get off me, man. <laughs> Alright, we leave that, we leave that word in the first century. So, what Gordon Fee is saying is, the, I, there is an idea that we use in interpreting the Bible called cultural relativity. Everyone say cultural relativity. Now, there are some extremists that will throw out this idea altogether. And they will actually strive to make the first century culture their norm for today. Those are some crazy groups that be living on their own in like Lancaster, Pennsylvania or something like that. You know, like, you know, but there are, there are kind of groups like that. But we got to understand that there is no such thing as a divinely ordained culture. I don't care how proud you are of your culture or ethnicity. There is no divine or not divine culture in the world. You know, not only does the cultures of today differ from the ones 2,000 years ago, but the thousands of cultures we have today differ from one another. So how are we to lay claim on any one culture? The Korean culture is God's divine culture. Kimchi was God's idea. <laughs> Represents the fire of the Holy Spirit. I don't know, like, you know. That kind of ethnocentric, man, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta do away with that. Okay? Because there is no divinely ordained culture. So we have to understand there are things in the first century culture that were good, not so good, things that pertain to us today, and things that we just need to leave there in the first century. Okay? So the idea of cultural relativity. Now, when you, when you start discussing this idea, smart people will pick up right away, oh, this is dangerous. Oh, this is a slippery slope. Okay? So Gordon Fee understands that. So he pre presents seven guidelines. Now, I'm not giving you these seven guidelines so that you memorize them. All right? I'm just presenting it to you so you can reference them. Okay? So it's in the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Okay? It's, it's uh, usually at our Hillside uh, Library. And you can pick it up on Amazon. Okay? So I'm going to present seven guidelines that Fee gives uh, when you're dealing with cultural relativity uh, uh, for interpreting the Bible. And he believes this is a very valid hermeneutical procedure, a very valid interpretive method. Okay, hermeneutical procedure just means interpretive method. Okay. Now, uh, here are some of the guidelines. I'm just going to go through these real quick. Seven guidelines. Here we go. Number one, one should first distinguish between the central core of the message of the Bible and what is dependent, or, dependent on or peripheral to it. Okay, that's the first guideline. You've got to identify the central message in the Bible. You know, the redemption. The gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, you got to identify the, the things that if you taint, you lose Christianity. Okay? And so you got to identify that, right? And then those things that are peripheral, that are, that are not so crucial and important. Second, uh, one should distinguish between what the New Testament sees as inherently moral and what is not. Okay? There are certain things presented in the New Testament that are inherently moral, 
immoral. Debauchery, for example, okay, is inherently immoral. All right, you see what people do when they get crazy drunk? They do all kinds of ungodly things. So the Apostle Paul writes, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right? That is a moral, immoral issue, debauchery. But you know what's not a moral, immoral issue? It's the holy kiss. Okay? If I refuse to give a holy kiss to Troy, Troy cannot accuse me of being a wicked man. <laughs> if he did, people would be like, what's wrong with you, Troy? Calm down. He don't want to kiss you. All right? He's, like, He's immoral. He's an immoral pastor. He does not obey the Bible. You know? It's, it's like, what? Calm down, man. That issue is not inherently immoral. So we got to identify between those that are inherently immoral and that are not. Fourth guideline. It's important to distinguish within the New Testament between principle and specific application. Principle and application. We got to learn how to distinguish between the two. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, let me read you a quote by Gordon Fee. He says, It is possible for a New Testament writer to support a relative application by an absolute principle and in so doing not make the application absolute. Okay, how many of you guys would like that read again? Okay, I'm going to read that again. Okay. It is possible for a New Testament writer to support a relative application. Oh, I lost my place. Support a relative application by an absolute principle and in so doing not make the application absolute. Okay, so let me, let me use an example of head coverings. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, okay, for, uh, 2 through 16, Paul tells the church, Y'all got to cover your heads, women. When you come to church, you got to cover your head. When you prophesy, cover your head. When you pray, cover your head, woman. Okay? So he teaches that. Now, on top of that, he appeals to creation, the order of creation, and redemption itself. Things that are absolute, things that are unchanging. He refers to them to establish the principle that one should do nothing to distract from the glory of God in worship. So the, 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 the principle behind the reason why he wanted women to wear head coverings, the principle was, we don't want you to be a distraction. We don't want to take anything away from the glory of God in worship. So y'all, women, cover your heads, okay? And so the creation account that he appeals to is absolute. So a lot of times we assume that the application is also absolute, But it is not. It is relative. Let me prove my point. In Janae's church, people wear head coverings. But in most Western churches, people don't wear head coverings. In fact, if next Sunday... Sky Kim... I mean, Sky Becker, I'm sorry. I'm going to pick up a Sky. Jamie, okay. If Jamie, our sister Jamie, came to church next week with a head covering, a full-on, full-length veil, okay? And she came and she started worshiping, especially right here in the front. She's just like, yeah, I love Jesus. Yeah, and she's praying and prophesying. But it's okay because she's got a head covering. You know, she can do whatever she wants. Um, in most westernized churches, 
she would draw all kinds of attention to herself and therefore abuse the very principle that Paul was trying to teach in this text. Somebody get what I'm saying? So the, so the application is not absolute, it's relative. Paul supported this relative application with an absolute principle, but he did not necessarily intend to make the application absolute. And we got to learn how to distinguish between the difference. Uh, number five, second, fifth guideline. It's important to determine the cultural options that are open to a New Testament writer when he writes. It's a good example is slavery. Back then, slavery was the norm. Non-slavery was hard to find. So, you know, people are like, man, yeah, my slave did this this morning and I'll beat that slave. All right, if they say that, back then it was like, oh, okay, you're just an abusive master. But nobody's like, you have slaves? Okay, the issue would never be like, you have slaves. It would be like, oh, you're just an abusive master. Why? Because people had slaves back then. You were rich, you were wealthy, you had slaves. There was a different system than what America instituted with, with bringing Africans over. Okay? There was a different system back then, but nevertheless, it was a systematic slavery. And Paul, when he wrote his letters, he deals with slavery in a way that reflects that systematic slavery was the only cultural option that was available to him at that time. So if, if systematic slavery, if there were other cities that he knew about that didn't have it, he would have written about slavery differently. Do you get what I'm saying? So that people who don't really get this, during the colonial period in America, they were using the Bible to justify the slavery of Africans. And what they didn't get is the Apostle Paul, that was the only cultural norm that was available to him. It wasn't that he supports and justifies slavery. It's simply that how can you be godly in a world that is only filled with systematic slavery? Do you get what I'm saying here? So you have to understand the cultural options that were available to the New Testament writer because that's going to affect how he addresses that issue. That's a huge point. You guys should really get that. Number six, uh, another guideline is one must keep alert to possible cultural differences between the first and 21st centuries. And lastly, one must finally exercise Christian charity in dealing with differences and have a willingness to ask forgiveness from those whom they defer. And what Gordon Fee is saying, you know, these are my views. These are some guidelines that I use to get to those views. But finally, we're going to disagree. But if we're going to go disagree, let's do it in a graceful manner. Okay? All right. So those are the seven guidelines that Gordon Fee lays out. Now, let's look at how these guidelines apply to the specific issue of women in ministry. All right. Now, the main texts are 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2. Okay? Um, turn to 1 Timothy 2. Keep that open. In both of the texts, silence or quietness is urged. So is submissiveness. These are all things that are urged in both texts. And then in 1 Timothy 2, it goes further by saying the woman is not permitted to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, lots of well-meaning Christians 
they used 1 Timothy 2 to forbid women from teaching in front of men. And they used it to forbid women from being in a leadership position over men. Men or women. Men and women. Uh, And then they they often you will use 1 Timothy 2 as the main text. And then they will kind of say, oh, well, look at this. 1 Corinthians 14. This kind of supports what we've been saying. So it just kind of becomes a support text. Okay, because the main, the main thrust comes out of 1 Timothy 2. Okay. Now, the problem I have with this is, complementarians claim to have the plain reading of the text, but I find that their application of that interpretation is half-hearted at best. Let me explain. Because if they really believe what the text says and they interpret it with the plain reading of it, a wholehearted application of that reading will look like this. Let me present to you what it will look like. This is what a wholehearted application would look like. First, women will not only not be allowed to grab the mic here and, and teach and preach in front of a pulpit in front of men and women, but they wouldn't be for prohibited from writing books Teaching on audio or video? Why? Because a man might get a hold of that book. And women are forbidden from teaching men. Okay? And so a wholehearted application would involve women are forbidden from writing anything pertaining to spiritual truth. We have to prohibit women from ever teaching men. So we've got to get rid of all the books, all the video, all the audio. Take them all down. That's like a wholehearted commitment. To, this, to the application of the plain reading. Now the thing is, I'm pretty sure that most complementarians, including people like John Piper, if you looked inside of his bookshelf, you would find Christian books from female authors. <laughs> he and other complementarians may teach, women are not allowed to teach men. Well, I think it's a little bit strange that they make an exception for themselves. Well, I'm a discerning... Well, the, the women didn't teach me anything. I read that book, I didn't, I didn't learn anything. <laughs> I think it's a little strange to me. Another aspect of a, of a wholehearted application. Women would not be allowed to teach in Christian educational syst- institutes of any kind. If you go on to Trinity Evangelical Seminary, their website, you will find that they have female PhD holding women that teach at Trinity. Now, back in Trinity's history, they didn't have women. But now they do. In fact, I was surprised in my research that even the conservative dispensational school of Dallas Theological Seminary, they even have female professors. Man, Dallas has come a long way. <laughs> can't even, I can't believe they did that, man. It just sounds something, something's wrong. Because most of those guys, they, those professors, those faculty, or the graduates, they go on to establish churches where they forbid women from ever teaching to men. But when they go visit their seminary, they're like, oh, well, you guys have a PhD. We'll make an exception for you. You guys aren't really women. You guys are more like men. 
I don't know. I don't know what their thinking is. But they're making allowance for it, which means they're not giving a wholehearted application of this text, the plain reading of it. Um, Wheaton College. John Piper's alma mater. Lydia Ross' alma mater has female professors. People who graduate from Wheaton, some of them go on and they forbid women from teaching. But I don't think Piper, when he was there, I can't prove this, but I don't think whenever a female professor came in to do a lecture, he would just say, oh my goodness, this is so unbiblical. And he'll just get up and stand and walk out. And he'll just boycott all of the lectures where female teachers teach. I don't think he ever did that. If he did, I think people would write about it. But he didn't. And Wheaton has female professors. Right, Lydia? They're on the website. And she has proven that they are. Because she, she went there. Man, isn't that so... So I mean, there's something wrong with the spirit of that. Like, they forbid women from teaching men. But then... They don't mind benefiting from those women's teachings. As long as not everybody finds out about it. Uh, another aspect. Women would not be allowed to teach men in the missions field. Even if they are the only qualified Bible teacher. If you do a wholehearted application, you should forbid women from teaching anywhere. Teaching men anywhere in the church or ministry context. That would include missions. But did you know that a lot of Missionary organizations that are conservative, they forbid women from teaching in their, in their churches to men. But when those same female missionaries go into the missions field, man, they could just start their own Bible college. I mean, they could, they could teach all the men they want. But not when they're in America. So what happens is, there are actual examples in some of these books where these indigenous people and indigenous leaders, they go and visit America. And they're like, hey, Sister Sally, Missionary Sally, Man, you taught the word of God so powerfully. Are you going to speak this Sunday? And Sally's like, whoa, never. My church will never let me speak at the pulpit. Maybe share a testimony, but that's it. Well, you preached and teach me all these years. And I'm a man. That seems a little strange. Seems like a double standard. Well, well, I don't know about all that. But, you know, my leaders, they're biblical. So, all right, let's not touch that issue. I'm just blessed that they let me go on the missions field and, and do a little teaching to men. Okay? This is a little something strange. It's not wholehearted application. And finally, a wholehearted application would forbid women not only from teaching and taking leadership positions, it would forbid them from even speaking anywhere in the church. Because both texts say, women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Jamie, don't speak. Can I get an amen? Only from the men. All right, a whole other application. That will, that will be what it looks like. First Timothy 2 also says, the woman is to remain quiet. So if someone really believes the plain reading of these texts, okay, that's what a wholehearted application would look like. But let's face the music. Nobody applies the text that way. Even the most traditional traditionalists, the most sexist Christian leaders, do not apply these two texts in that way. 
the reason why I have a hard time supporting complementarian view is because it picks and chooses the application of these two passages. They claim to believe the plain reading of the text, but in actuality, the majority of such people, they pick and choose what to believe. And you know what? I just don't, I can't support that. I have a hard time going along with that. So that's why I never felt at peace with just saying, you know what? I'm okay with the teaching. I'm okay with the preaching, but I cannot be okay with the leadership thing. That's still picking and choosing. Now, personally, because of my culture and tradition, which does affect me, if I went to a local church with a lead female pastor, I would be very uncomfortable. I'll tell you that right now. Pastor Paul used to tell me about Pastor Deborah in the city. She is one gangster woman, gangster pastor. All right? And I thought Pastor Deborah was leading a cult because I just never heard of a lead pastor that's female. But Pastor Paul's like, man, she discipled me. She hammered me. She, she made me who I am today, all this stuff. And it honors her. But, you know, I was, just, I was very uncomfortable with that. Because in my tradition and culture, I never experienced that. Okay, but the question still comes back to what does the Bible say about that view? What does the Bible say about the way you feel right now? Now, that's the plain reading and the wholehearted application of this text. I'm establishing that complementarians aren't doing that. They're picking and choosing. Now, they, some of them have good logic be, between why they pick and choose. So don't dismiss it. They have good logic between why they pick and choose, why they allow teaching but not leadership, why they allow speaking and the braided hair to be in church when a verse earlier says no braided hair, no elaborate hair styles, no gold, no, no pearls, no expensive clothing. What are you doing, Grace Yang, wearing Banana Republic to church? Okay, that's expensive clothing. I only want to see Old Navy in the house. Right? No one ever does that, right? And that's just two verses preceding 1 Timothy 2.11. 9 and 10, it talks about that. No one ever has issue with that. Right? So, I mean, they pick and choose. They have their own logic behind why they pick and choose. Um, now, what I'm going to present to you right now is that these two main texts... They're culturally relative. That's what I'm going to go for. Okay? And I hope I do it in a gracious way, but I've known to be a little bit dogmatic. Okay, I understand. I'm passionate. You, I call it passion, you call it dogmatic. Okay? But I'm going to try to do it graciously, but I, I do know that I, I tend to get very convicted and get very passionate, and I might preach it in a way uh, that may not feel gracious. So my apologies in advance. Okay, but I'm just going to present what I believe these two texts, how it is culturally relative. Let's go into it, okay? 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, can be supported to be culturally relative by the exegesis of other Pauline letters. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 15, and 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 9, in those two passages, Paul describes certain women at the church's Ephesus, especially passion-filled younger widows, who just lost their husbands. And um, he describes these certain women who were being troublesome at the church and they have seemed to have played a big role in allowing false teachers to infiltrate the church. So the Apostle Paul addresses these women. Gordon Fee explains further, 
Since women are found teaching and prophesying elsewhere in the New Testament, it is altogether likely that 1 Timothy 2, 11-12 speaks to a local problem. It was an Ephesus church issue. And therefore, it was an Ephesus church application. Not an absolute one for all times, for all people. And somebody usually will say here, well, what about the fact that Paul appeals to the creation account? That should tell you it's not a local application. This should be a universal one. He's, he's quoting Genesis. He's talking about Genesis. Uh, let's read that. 13 through 15. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Well, according to the fifth guideline I talked about earlier, remember that when we look for a culturally relative text, it's important to distinguish between principle and specific application. So I'll reread Fee's quote from earlier. It is possible for a New Testament writer to support a relative application by an absolute principle. And in so doing, not make the application absolute. Okay? So remember head coverings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Paul appeals to creation and redemption to establish the principle that no one should uh, do anything to extract from the glory of God, distract from the glory of God in worship. Right? That's the principle. Don't distract. The application, wear head coverings. Many of us find that the creation account is absolute, but that application is relative. We already talked about that. Well, in the same way, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 through 15, Paul appeals to the creation account to establish the principle that truth must be guarded in the church. I believe the bottom line principle that Paul is trying to get at by giving this instruction is guard the truth. Why? Because Timothy was a young leader and the Apostle Paul was trying to train him up to be a leader in the church. And if all these false teachings are spreading throughout the church, Paul is like, Timothy, you got to put a control on that. So the principle is guard truth. And he submits an application of that principle. And that is to forbid women from teaching, having leadership positions, or speaking up. In order to quell the false teaching that was spreading via the women that were uneducated and passionate and idle and gossipers and weak-willed and widows at Ephesus. The false teaching was spreading through all these women because they talk too much. They gossip too much. You know, all the men are out working. The women got nothing to do. So, you know, they didn't have Oprah back then. So they all got together. And they, a lot of them weren't educated, so they were like, man, this sounds right to me. Yeah, that sounds right to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. That false teacher, all right, that sounds good to me. And they just started, yeah, let me tell you something, girl. And they're spreading all this stuff. And Paul's like, man, Timothy, you got to guard the truth there. Ephesus is going to fall apart. You need to guard the truth. You know what? Here's how you're going to guard the truth. Forbid women from teaching. Forbid them from needing Forbid them from even speaking. I mean, even speaking? That seems a little extreme. Well, you would want to take an extreme approach as well if you were dealing with the extreme problems that Ephesus had. 
So Paul is trying to nip it right in the bud. Is that how you say it? Nip it in the bud. I always thought it was butt. But I just didn't say, want to say butt, so I say bud. But it is the right way to say it. He wanted to nip it in the bud. And so the way he did that was he just said, women, tell them to shut up. And it was a local application, by the way. Because he didn't do that for all the women in the churches he planted. He taught women to pray and prophesy out loud. Why would he teach a woman to prophesy, which is usually speaking? It involves speaking. No one telepathically prophesies. Right? Why would he allow a woman to use her spiritual gifts to prophesy if he wanted a universal application, an absolute application of they must be silent? I mean, come on, man. Use your brains, y'all. All right, that's where I'm starting to get dogmatic. I'm sorry. Okay. I added that. I'm sorry. And uh, if you use some of the other guidelines he presented, he presented seven, right? Let me try to go over a couple of them, right? Um, first guideline was identif- distinguish the uh, central core message of the Bible. What's the central core message of the Bible? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the redemption of man from the fallenness that he has fallen into through his sin. That's a central message, right? I don't think Paul's instruction to women here at 1 Timothy 2 to be the same as the central message of the Bible. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's central to the gospel. In fact, it's peripheral at best. And it's not even dependent on each other. Okay, And so we have to distinguish the central core message of the Bible. Second guideline was to distinguish what the New Testament sees as inherently immoral. I told you, holy kiss is not inherently immoral. But you know what? Neither is a woman teaching in front of men and women, in front of a mixed gender audience. You know, I cannot recall a single time ever since I got baptized with the Holy Spirit. I can't recall a, whole, a single time where a woman picked up the mic at a Christian event and started sharing or even teaching or even preaching. And I've seen women preachers, good ones, by the way, way better than some men I've seen. When they start preaching, I don't get a prompting from the Holy Spirit. That is wicked, immoral, unbiblical. What she is doing must be stopped. Christian, get up there and stop her. Okay. I've never gotten that prompting. But when I see a, a gentleman dabbling with occultism, sexual immorality, debauchery, if you're on leadership, you dabble with debauchery, what am I going to do? Holy Spirit's like, go talk to that person. Speak to the truth in love. Be firm. Love them, but don't compromise my word. What they've done is immoral. What they've done is a sin. Must be confronted. Lead them to confess it. Okay, I don't get that. Maybe you do. The Holy Spirit doesn't really stir that up in me. So I have a hard time thinking a holy kiss or a woman teaching and preaching in front of a man. I have a hard time thinking that's immoral. Okay, all right. I'm not saying I'm basing everything on my experience, but I'm just saying, all right, my experience is that. That's my experience. I'm not basing everything on that, but I'm just saying that's my experience. Everybody got that? So I, I, I have a hard time thinking it's inherently immoral. 
third guideline was uh, make a special note of items where the New Testament has a uniform and consistent witness. The New Testament does not have a uniform and consistent witness toward the plain reading of these two texts. If this is what God really meant through the Apostle Paul, maybe Jesus should have mentioned it. Maybe some of the other gospel writers, some of the other New Testament writers should have mentioned it. But there is no consistent witness to back up this plain reading. And if you put it in the larger context, the whole Bible, oh man, you're really in trouble then. Because you don't have anything to back that up. There is nothing in the whole of Bible that gives witness to this interpretation that women should be quiet. Now, um, I believe that these two texts, they cannot be isolated from the rest of Scripture. And they should, they should be in the context of all of Scripture, and it should be in agreement with all of Scripture. Amen? Uh, we looked at the fourth guideline. We already discussed that. Principle and application, we already discussed that. Fifth uh, guideline, we've got to uh, determine the cultural options open to the New Testament writer. Come on, think about this one. When the Apostle Paul wrote... Okay. Vast majority of the women were uneducated. I think there were some educated women, but it was vast majority were uneducated. Okay. <clears throat> so he writes to the church in Ephesus regarding all these women that talk, 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 talk. And he's got to put an end to the false teachings from spreading, right? So he writes in the context of the cultural options that were open to him. What does he write? Tell him to shut up. That's what he writes. Why? Because that's the only cultural option that's open. Because they're all uneducated. Now, I believe that the Apostle Paul were living today, okay, and he had a similar situation on his hands, he could write like this. I can tell that some of y'all young women, the passion, lust-filled young women, they are going around spreading all kinds of gossip and lies and false teachings in the church. Tell them, to get an educated small group leader who knows her Bible so that they can come into knowledge of the truth. Okay? Paul can't write that 2,000 years ago. He can write that today. Why? Because there are other cultural options that will be open to him if he was living today. But because there were no other options, it was either uneducated or uneducated or uneducated. You know, and you don't want like to, for Paul to be like, go to go have those women get with some men and get some private one-on-one teaching. You know, that just sounds scandalous. <laughs> so what do you say? Just tell them to shut up. In fact, he, he tells the widows later on. You know why he tells the widows? Because he tells the wives to go, go ask your husbands at home, right? Well, he tells the widows, get married so you can ask your husbands at home. <laughs> and that's so interesting. Why? Because there was no options open to him to instruct the church otherwise. I think that's a real good point, man. Uh, you know, Paul's attitudes toward women, if you read the whole New Testament, was actually quite advanced compared to his contemporaries. You know, he um, allowed Priscilla to teach a man, a key leader named Apollos. An apostle, Apostle Apollos, was taught by Priscilla. So back then, if people were like, who's your mentor, Apollos? Who has taught you the word of God? 
Apollos will be like, um, uh, Priscilla. <laughs> and he probably wasn't proud of it because it was a female that taught him. You know what I mean? Uh, Paul's like, you know what? I commend you, Priscilla. Uh, he commends Phoebe as a deacon, which is a leadership position. Uh, he commends Junius, which is a traditionally Greek female name, as an apostle. And we'll get into that in another message. And so, um, cultural options that were open to Paul affected the way he wrote. Uh, another guideline was, you got to keep cultural differences in mind between the 1st and 21st centuries. Let's admit it, there are huge cultural differences from the 1st century and today's century. Today's, today's time. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul gives the implication. Remember, remember I said earlier, Paul gives the implication through the Genesis account that that women are easily deceived and that they're only really good for going home and changing the diapers. Remember I said that's the plain reading and I agree with it because I think that is the plain reading. Okay. Um, get implication is given that women should not be allowed to teach because why? Their teaching was unreliable and the women were easily deceived. Why? Because they were uneducated back then. So if women are easily deceived, why should we allow them to even teach at all at that time? That was Paul's logic. Right? And so, people believe that Paul references Genesis chapter 3 to show that women are incapable of teaching. But the truth of the matter is, women were incapable of teaching at that time. So when Paul references Genesis 3 and says women are incapable, implies that women are incapable of teaching, that is a true statement. Back then, women were incapable of teaching. Like, I've been on a mission trip, right, to many different third world countries, right? Right? I would not go to Cambodia, take a young convert who has no education whatsoever, and say, hey, young man, all right, I want you to come to New Philadelphia Church in Korea, and I want you to be a Bible teacher at my church. Which one of y'all would do that? None of y'all would do that. Why? Because the homie didn't even go through grade school yet. His appeal to Genesis 3 was clearly accurate because it was accurate for that time. But I believe if Paul was living here, breathing today, he would never make such a statement. I'm like, I thought they were incapable. But man, I saw Beth Moore preaching at this women's conference where I was playing, I was, I was serving as security in the back. <laughs> Women can teach. That woman can teach. She either is a man inside or that's a woman and she has the ability to teach. Okay. I believe Paul was living today. He would never quote that. But back then it made accurate sense. And there's cultural differences, right? Um, Paul actually wrote in first Corinthians 35, 1435, um, Hey, Esther, can you do me a favor? Can you read 1 Corinthians 14.35? Actually, no, no, don't read it. Just say, I love God. Oh, what are you doing? It is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And that's not my words. That was 1 Corinthians 14.35. It says, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, 
Now, this applies to guideline six because we got to understand the cultural differences. Back then in that culture, it was shameful for a woman to speak up in church. Why? Because a lot of them were uneducated. In today's culture, a woman speaks up in church and you probably will want to let her because, you know, she's a woman and, you know, she, you know, she, she's, she takes aerobics and, man, she, she, can, she can fight. And anyway, all right, uh, you let her speak. All right. It is not shameful for a woman to speak in church. Amen, woman. The welcoming committee does not welcome you like. It's shameful for me to speak because I'm a woman. Okay, she, she, welcome to New Philadelphia. Right, they speak up. Now, this is a cultural, this, this is a cultural difference that we shouldn't dismiss. Back then it was shameful. Today it is not. So what do we do with this verse? We leave it in the first century. But I, I mentioned this at Hillside. If you were ever to go as a missionary to Saudi Arabia, do me a favor. Bring this verse back. You know why? Because it's shameful for women to speak up in a church setting in Saudi Arabia. So if you ever planted a church in some of those Muslim countries, in Afghanistan, any of these countries, you probably want to bring this back out. Because that's the cultural norm of that Muslim culture. Do you guys hear what I'm saying? Man, that's why we need the Spirit of God. Because you can't interpret and read and handle the text, the Word of God, without the Spirit of God. And the, the, the promise is, Jesus said, the Spirit of God, the Spirit will lead you into all truth. You know, even where I get a little bit lost in my research and reading, I never have this anxiety like, oh no, there's no hope of me ever reaching the truth. Okay? I never have that anxiety. I'm just like, I just, I just read and I'm like, man, this stuff is confusing. Oh, that's good. This is opposite, but this is better. Man, what do I think? I never hit anxiety. I just think, that's all right. Holy Spirit will lead me to all truth. I have that confidence. Now, I know that people in opposing views have that same confidence. Okay? But hey, hey, I would invite a healthy discussion, or even a debate. Okay? I'm, I'm okay with debating. All right? I would, I would invite that. All right? Most people don't want to engage that because it gets too emotional. I would invite that. And I will see if I'm being led by the Spirit or if you're being led by the Spirit. It should be through persuasive arguments. We should be able to tell what is the Bible actually saying. You know what I mean? Anyway, I never get hit with anxiety because the Holy Spirit leads us all into truth. Into all truth. You can believe that. You can bank on that. And, you know, the final guideline, you know, we should always exercise Christian charity in dealing with differences. Always be gracious. Ask for forgiveness from people that we differ from. You know what I mean? Uh, I think that's the best attitude to have regarding this whole issue. Um, I believe that Jesus was perfect theology with two feet. So if you really want to understand the attitude of God toward women in ministry, you got to observe the ministry of Jesus. And in the ministry of Jesus, he allowed Mary to sit at his feet and to receive his teachings. 
And I believe that later when Mary was one of the first people to, to witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God wanted to spread the gospel through a woman's testimony. Do you know how all of the people in the Samaritan town where Jesus met the woman at the well? You know how all of them came, came to see Christ and believe in Christ? It was through a woman's testimony. You know, back in that culture, a woman's testimony was worthless. In court, it did not uphold. But God was not afraid to use the woman's testimony to bring people to Jesus. And I'm just so convinced that even today, God likes using women to bring both genders to Christ. Whether you want to call it a testimony or you want to call it preaching. Whatever works for you. I just don't see anything inherently immoral about a woman taking the mic. About a woman writing a book with amazing teachings that are going to bless the body of Christ. Why would you stop that? Because of biblical exegesis. Well, here, let me show you my biblical exegesis. Here it is. I believe those two texts are culturally relative. If you want to bring it out of the first century and apply it to today, be my guest. But when you come into this house, be gracious when a woman gets up and grabs the mic. You can always walk out. You'll be walking out of a good sermon. You're going to always walk out. But be gracious. Because in this house, we think those texts are culturally relative. By the way, we won't greet you with a holy kiss here. <laughs> Let me close your eyes right now. You know, a lot of egalitarians, they have really bad exegesis. Meaning they really handled the biblical text. Sometimes they handle it very badly. And therefore, a lot of egalitarian people are looked down upon by smart complementarians. But I'm here to submit to you today that bad exegesis uh, egalitarians aren't the only kinds of egalitarians out there. There are people that are led by the Spirit of God that know the Word of God and they just find that these two texts these two texts are culturally relative. We believe in the full authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, but we also understand the different dynamics that are included in the New Testament writings. And we choose to be discerning about the text that we handle. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 29, the word of God says, that in those days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
and your sons and daughters will prophesy. We're living in a time where God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh, brothers and sisters. And I believe that we need to learn, especially to the men of God, we need to man up and learn how to honor ministers of God that have gone before us. People like Catherine Coleman, people like Amy Semple McPherson, people like Mariah Woodworth Etter. Amazing women of God that changed the face of America. That changed the landscape of religion in America. That kept Christianity burning strong in America. We need to learn how to honor these women. And stop dismissing them as if they did something evil by using their gifts. Their God-given gifts. That they did something evil by leading their movements the way they did. And you know, personally here at New Philly... This is my own personal preference. This is not biblical exegesis. This is my personal preference. My personal preference is to have a male pastor be in charge. Here, I said it, right? That's my personal preference. But in the future, when we do church plants, and let's say we go to Pyongyang and Jeju or Tokyo or Singapore, we do church plants all over Asia, and I'm looking at a group of 10, 15 young men and women And I'm looking for the person on that team that can best handle and preach the word of God. And the best person on that team, the best leader on that team is actually a female. I will not be afraid to go with the female. I think for me, I'd rather be wrong about this exegesis, get to heaven and have God say, Christian, you are wrong in allowing that female leader to lead that church plant. That was not what my word said. You were wrong. And I'll just say, Lord, I'm sorry. I guess I was wrong. But we did see a whole lot of fruit in Singapore, didn't we? She did a bang-up job still. But Lord, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'd rather say that on judgment day than get to God before God in heaven And God say, why did you not allow Catherine and Sarah and Grace and Tanya and Shelly? Why didn't you allow them to preach the word of God when they were just as capable as Troy and Ryan and John Michael? Why did you prevent them from leading when they had a true leadership gift? When I'm distributing leadership gifts, not only in the church, but to the entire world. And there are female presence arising in the, in the world. It shows you that I am giving leadership gifts to all genders. Why did you prevent them? Man, and I just, I'll tell you right now, Judgment Day looks a whole lot scarier in the latter scenario than it does in the former. And I guess what I'm saying to y'all in all honesty, I'd rather be wrong about this whole cultural relative exegesis than I would be in standing in a complementarian, half-hearted application interpretation and forbid women from using their spiritual gifts and forbid women from giving their their God-given assignment on the earth from, from them to accomplish it. So I hope you guys know what my heart is. I prefer the male leader. But you know what? Sometimes, and maybe... 
many times, the female leader might be even the best choice. And in those cases, we will not be afraid to go with it. If you're in here today, and you feel like God has called you to to speak up in the church, whether that's through writing a book, grabbing the mic, you feel like God has called you to teach and preach. Not just share testimonies, not just do children's ministry. You believe believe God's called you to preach and teach in front of men and women in the church, but you've been afraid to pursue that. You've been afraid to explore that because the church has told you that you are evil, that you don't know your Bible, that you're just a liberal egalitarian, you're a feminist. You've been been afraid of those things, and therefore you've you've not explored those things. But today you want to make a stand and say, Lord, I sense your freedom here. To step out, and I'm willing to take whatever stigma comes my way, so that I can be true to the calling that I believe you placed in my life. I believe you call me to speak up. I believe you call me to teach. I believe you call me to write books that are to be read by both men and women. I believe that you have called me to lead leadership, leadership over a media ministry, leadership over a church ministry, leadership. Over our missions organization, I believe you call me to lead. If that's you, I want you to stand up. And I just want to pray for a release in this room for all the women of God that have felt afraid to pursue and explore their God-given calling. I want you to stand up if you feel like that's you.